Well, good morning, church. Good morning, Balcony, and good morning, Coldwater Crew. Yeah, good to have you here. So good to have you with us. And uh, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Acts 26, verse 1. That is on page 935 in your pew Bibles. We're in the final phase of the Acts of the Apostles. The Apostle Paul is no longer a traveling church planter, planting churches all across the Mediterranean region. Now he's in prison, and he is being given the opportunity to give a defense of Christianity before governors, kings, and eventually even Caesar of Rome. Last week, we looked at Paul's defense before Governor Felix. This week, we will look at his defense before King Agrippa. Governor Felix uh, left the Apostle Paul languishing in prison for two years. Uh, We read about that in Acts 24, 27. Uh, That made the Jewish people very happy, obviously, because they assumed that if Paul was in prison, his influence would be curtailed. Of course, as we read through our New Testament, we realize that was not the case. Uh, When Felix was recalled to Rome, he left Paul in prison, as I mentioned, as a favor to the Jews, and then also just thinking he would hand the entire problem off to the new guy, the new governor, Governor Festus. And the Jews saw an opportunity in that transition. There's always a bit of uncertainty in a time of transition, so they petitioned to have the trial of the Apostle Paul moved to Jerusalem, where they hoped to assassinate him. Uh, But Paul was able, by the grace of God, to sniff out that plot, and he appealed to Caesar, as was his right as a Roman citizen. And so, now Festus has to create a summary of the charges against Paul to forward on to Rome. And so he asks for the assistance of King Agrippa. It can be difficult, I realize, to keep all the Herods straight uh, in the New Testament. There's a bunch of them, and they're clearly not the same. And it, I'll be honest with you, it takes a book and a chart uh, to keep them all straight. Herod was very prolific uh, in a variety of ways, and so he had lots of children, and uh, they're all over the place in your New Testament. This Herod, Herod Agrippa, was uniquely positioned to help Festus with this particular task. In fact, you might say he was maximally well positioned. It was his grandfather who had tried to kill the baby Jesus uh, in Matthew. You remember that in Matthew's Gospel? It was his father who had arrested the Apostle Peter and had had uh, James, the brother of John, beheaded. And then it was his uncle that had uh, killed John the Baptist, and who participated in Jesus' trial. So there's probably no one in the Roman Empire better, assisted, or better suited to assist Governor Festus in this particular task. So Paul is summoned, and he is asked to provide a summary of the Christian message and to explain why it is that this message is turning the Jewish world upside down. And, and not just the Jewish world now, but in fact the Roman world as well. So what in the world is going on here? What is this gospel that you are preaching. That's where we jump back into the story. Hopefully you have your Bible open now to Acts 26, verse 1. We'll read the entire narrative all the way through to verse 32. Hear now the word of the Lord. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, 
if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews. Okay. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long... I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. That's a long speech. In fact, it is the longest of the court speeches recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. But thankfully, for our purposes, the Apostle Paul tells us exactly what the heart of the matter is. Look again at verses 6 to 8. So just zoom in there. Paul says this, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So the heart of the issue, the heart of the matter, according to the Apostle Paul, is the hope of the Jews. I believe that all the promises that were made by God to our people in the Old Testament have now landed climactically on the person and work of Christ, Paul says. I was like you. I was was persecuting the Christians. But then I met the resurrected Jesus on the side of the road, and in that moment, everything changed. I changed. I went from being a, a persecutor to a preacher. I went from being an antagonist to an apostle. You witnessed that transformation. You know who I was, and you know who I am, and this change that you have observed in me is due to my reckoning with a single fact. The fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. That means that he was who he said he was. That means that all the hopes of Israel have begun to come to pass. If the first fruits have risen from the dead, surely the whole crop will follow. That means that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I'm I'm on trial, Paul says. Because I believe that. I'm standing over here defending myself before you, O King Agrippa, because I believe that. But the big question is not why I believe that. The big question, King Agrippa, is why do you not? You believe the prophets. Why then should it be thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So that's the speech. And in order for us to properly appreciate it and to be edified by it, we need to try and ask and answer three pretty simple questions this morning. Number one, what was the hope of the Jews? If we're going to stand amazed at the fact that Jesus fulfills the hope of the Jews, we better know what that is. So what is the hope of the Jews? How does Paul believe that those hopes have been realized? And then number three, why was that so hard for the Jewish people to believe? We'll start with the first one. What was the hope of the Jews? By the end of the Old Testament era, the hope of the Jews was being expressed and defined in terms of resurrection. And we see that beginning to happen in the time of the exile. So in the time of the exile, uh, the people understood, you remember this, the the people understood that the exile was like a a timeout that was going to last for 70 years. It was a devastating timeout. It was a devastating punishment, but but it was... Time limited. It was only going to last for 70 years. So as they came to the end of that time period, they began to be excited about going back home. We're going back to the land. People would whisper that to each other. When they did business in the shops, they'd say, you know, the time is is at hand. We're going to go back to the land. It's going to be great. But the prophets took a deeper view. The prophets began to ask, listen, what good will, will it do us to go back to the land? if we're still the same people that we were when we got kicked out of the land? What, what good will it do us 
to just have another cycle at this. How many cycles have there been when God blesses us and we enjoy those blessings, but then we fall away, our kids fall away, the grandkids fall away, the great-grandkids can't even remember the name of God, and we end up back in the gutter, back in the dungeon, back in the dark once again. What, what is the good of repeating this cycle? What good will the land do us if we have not been healed in our hearts? The prophets were beginning to think that for Israel to have a future, they would need more than a return to the land. They would need a resurrection from the dead. You can see that hope most clearly in passages like Ezekiel 37. So if you have a Bible in your hand or one that you have access to, just, just flip over in your Bible. That'll be flipping left to fairways. Ezekiel 37 is near the middle of your Bible. It's on page 724 in the Pew Bible. Normally I don't have you flipping all over the Bible for cross-references, but we're going to park on this one for a bit. Ezekiel's an exilic prophet, meaning he was one of those guys in the exile thinking thoughts about what it would actually take for Israel to have a future they could hold on to, a future where they could possess and enjoy the blessings of God for all eternity. He's thinking about those things. And as he's thinking about those things, the Lord comes to him in a vision. So this is Ezekiel 37.1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. So if you're a Christian, you're a church attender, a Bible reader, you went to Sunday school as a kid, you know what we're talking about right now. We're talking about the valley of dry bones. The dry bones, the dead bones, these people aren't just dead, they're long dead, they're hard dead. Valley of dry bones. The bones, of course, represent the nation of Israel. The message is pretty clear. They're they're not a sick people. They're not a troubled people. They're a dead people. That's the truth. And the people of Israel need to face that truth. So God takes the prophet out and shows him. Then he asks him a very interesting question. Verse 3, son of man, can these bones live? Is there any hope? For the people of Israel, that's what he's asking. And Ezekiel very wisely says back to him, O Lord God, you know. That's a good answer. That's a really good answer. It certainly looks impossible. Dead things generally don't come back to life. And yet, if God wills it, then it's not only possible, it's an absolute certainty. Is anything too hard for God? And so God shows him these bones coming back to life. Ezekiel sees a great resurrection. And then just so that there won't be any misunderstanding about what this vision means, the prophet is given an interpretation. Look at verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. 
So at some point in the future, God is going to raise Israel from the dead. He's going to raise them up, and he's going to heal their hearts, and he's going to put his spirit within them. This is going to be a whole new start. When they're raised from the dead, they're not going to be afflicted with the same soul sickness they had when they died. Look at verse 23. I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them. Now, you've got to be careful not to be too much of a literalist here. David has been dead now for centuries. So when, when God says, my servant David is going to be king over them, he's talking about a son of David in the future, a king like David. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. So a son of David is going to come who's going to be the king of God's people forever. If you're, if you're doing your RMM readings and you're good at math, do you ever add up how long these various dynasties and kings last? I think this morning... We saw a dynasty, Jehu, that lasted 28 years. I think that's one of the longest dynasties in northern Israel. Every time there's a transition, though, there's bloodshed and chaos in that story, right? As as is going to happen. How good to have a good and righteous and just king and for there never to be a transition in leadership, for there never to be a revolution, for there never to be an upheaval. There's going to be a good king. My servant David shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So I'm going to heal them and I'm going to lead them. I'm going to be with them as their God for all eternity, and the nations will know me as the Lord. So this resurrection is going to be a blessing to Israel and also to the nations. The hope of Israel is going to become the hope of the world. Thanks be to God. The Apostle Paul believed that. He believed every word of that, and he believed that those hopes had been realized through the person and work of Christ. So let's talk about that. How does Paul believe those hopes have been realized? Flip back in your Bibles now to Acts 26. I've got you dancing all over the place. Acts 26 again. And this time zoom in on verses 22 to 23. Paul says, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing But what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The Old Testament is a story in need of conclusion. Uh, You would know that if you've ever read it. You would uh, know that in particular if you read it in the original Hebrew version, in the original Hebrew Edition. So the order of books in our Old Testament, if you ever look at the table of contents in, the, in, in there, uh, the order of books in our English versions of the Old Testament actually follows the order of books 
in the older Greek, or sorry, in the more recent Greek edition of the Old Testament. So, we'll play a little sword drill here for a second. What's the last book of the Bible in, uh, in your English translation of the Old Testament? Malachi, right, because chronologically, um, we, we think that was the last book written. But it's actually not how the story was originally laid out. In the Hebrew Old Testament, does anybody know what the last book of the Bible is? Second Chronicles. That's right. Very good. If I had a Skittle, I would nail you right in the eye with that. Well done. <laughs> Second Chronicles. Now, when you lay out the story that way, it makes a very obvious point. Because second, in, when you lay your Bible out that way, the story of the Old Testament ends with the nation in exile, the land in ruin, and the temple having just been burned to the ground which is a pretty dramatic way of saying, it's over. It's over. Now, now there's a slight word of hope at the very end of 2 Chronicles. It refers to a proclamation by Cyrus that will allow the people to return to the land. But if you're reading that story in the Hebrew Bible, then you've already read the prophets. You've already read Ezekiel saying that it won't do us any good to return to the land until we have been raised from the dead. The system is so jammed up that it needs to be completely unplugged and rebooted. That's how the story ends. And Paul here is saying that's what Jesus came to this world to do. He is Israel. That's why his life mirrors the story of Old Testament Israel. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that when he was a child, he went to Egypt and then came back? Have you ever noticed that he went out into the desert to be tempted for 40 days as Israel was tempted in the desert for 40 years? Have you ever noticed that all of his miracles are like bigger versions of the main miracles in the Old Testament? Elisha can feed a room full of people with a couple loaves of bread. I got that. I could feed an army. I can feed thousands with a couple loaves of bread. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus is saying, I am Israel. He's picking up the story, and then he is taking it down, down, down into the very depths of hell, and then on the third day, thanks be to God, he rises from the dead. That is the death and resurrection that we need. His death on the cross pays for our sins and kills our iniquity. He knew that we could never possess the promises of God while our hearts were possessed by sin. So he made effective and lasting atonement. He removed the burden from our backs that was sinking us down to hell. And then to prove that all of his work was effective and to show that there could be a future for all those who put their trust in him, on the third day he rose from the dead. Jesus did that. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The hope that Paul extended was the hope of being in Christ. 
according to the apostle, if you are in Christ, then because God has raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise you from the dead to enjoy the presence and blessing of God forever. That is the hope of Israel, Paul says. That is the hope of the world, and that is the gospel that I preach. Now, why should it be thought incredible by any of you, any of you who've ever read your Bibles, why should it be thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That's the gauntlet that Paul throws down before Agrippa and by extension before all of his Jewish accusers. Why should you, of all people, why should you? Be so slow to recognize that the promises that were made through the prophets are now being realized through the person and work of Christ. So let's talk about that. Why was this so hard for the Jewish people to believe? I mean, really, they should have been the first. They should have been the first people to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There should have been a parade down the streets of Jerusalem on the morning of the third day. People should have been lining up to receive from him the total healing, total restoration, total resurrection that he was offering. Now, of course, in fairness, some were, and that needs to be said. The ground floor of the covenant community was entirely Jewish. But but by this point in the story, as we sort of transition from first generation to second generation, we see actually now it's the Romans flooding in, and the Jewish people are beginning to harden. Why is that? Well, of course, if you're a Bible reader, you know that there's an element of providence to this. Paul says in Romans 11.25, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So in the mystery of God's providence, the hardness of the Jewish people towards the gospel has actually served the cause of the Great Commission. You know, had and you can see why that is. Had Christianity remained a majority Jewish movement, then I think it's, it's possible that the, the nations, the Gentiles, would have looked at that and said, well, why would we become part of this movement? We'll always be second-class citizens. We'll always be a minority. We'll always be the younger brother. But in the providence of God, as Israel pulled back, the Romans, the nations flooded in. And this state of affairs, Paul says, will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But that's not the whole answer, is it? Because God doesn't harden people who are running towards him. He hardens people who have already turned away from him. So it still leaves us with the question, why? Why did they turn away in the first place? Based on what we see in the New Testament, I think we can offer a partial answer to that question. First of all, they turned away from the gospel of Jesus Christ because they didn't like the underlying implications. The very first words. It's interesting to compare the opening sermon of John the Baptist and Jesus because they both begin with the same word. You remember Jesus' sermon begins with the word repent, just like John, but Jesus also says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Admit your problem. Stop doing what you're doing and realize you're on the wrong road. You've taken a wrong turn. You are not just lost. You're dead and you need to be rescued. The gospel begins with the fundamental assumption that you can't save yourselves. You know, we sing that, right? Jesus paid it all, right? We do. It's not Jesus finished the job. 
I got off to a great start, right? That's not the gospel. The, the gospel is I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was hopeless. I was blind and watering, wandering, and God in his mercy sent Jesus Christ to find me. And that's the gospel. It, it, it begins with this fundamental assertion of human hopelessness. The gospel forces you down on your knees. It forces you to admit that you are blind, deaf, and dumb. That you cannot hear God. Everything you think you hear is actually coming from inside yourself through the distortions and deceit of sin. And so you don't need a hand up. You don't need help. You don't need directions. You need resurrection. And the Jews were offended by that. Paul talks about that in his letters. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended. And the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. I like that last line. The Gentiles don't have a clue what's going on. Right? The Gentiles are just confused. But the Jews understand, which is why they are offended. If the son of David has to die on a cross for us to be saved, what does that mean? The Jews knew very well what it means. It means that God thinks that we are hopelessly ensnared in our sin. It means that God has zero confidence that we will ever figure this out. It means that he has zero confidence that we will ever obey him. Do you know that there was a strand of, of hope in, in Jesus' day? It was quite interesting. There was a whole swath of Judaism that believed that if the Jewish people ever kept the whole law perfectly for just one week, Messiah would return and the kingdom of God would begin. And, and the gospel begins with basically saying, you understand there is literally no chance in hell of you ever doing that. And the Jews were offended by that. And of course, many of us are offended by that too. But that is exactly what the cross of Jesus Christ means. It means that we're fundamentally broken. It means that help will do us no good. It means that we need a drastic intervention. And that's what the cross is. Do you understand your need for that? Because if you don't, then you cannot be saved. If you are looking at Jesus and thinking, well, I think he could help me get over my addiction. Or I think he could help me with my self-esteem issues. Or I think he could help me with my... Then you are nowhere near the kingdom of God. Only when you realize I am dead and need to be resurrected. My heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. I need to be healed. Oh God, have mercy on me. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Salvation is only available to those who know that there is nothing they can do to earn it. Paul says that salvation is only for the person who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul says the only people who can be saved are the people who know that they are dead and who look to God for resurrection. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in general, the Jewish people found it very offensive. We're, we're the good guys. We're, we're team Yahweh. Right? 
I can, you know, this radical plan, I can see why the Gentiles, the, the Gentile dogs need that. I get that. But to say that we need that is offensive. And so they turned away. And then secondly, many of the Jews turned away from the gospel of Jesus Christ because they didn't like the order of operations. The Jews were focused on the land first and foremost, right? Give us the land. We'll take care of everything else. Get rid of the Romans and we'll take it from there. But that was to miss the fundamental point that the prophets were making. What good will it do you to possess the land if your hearts are still possessed by sin? The prophets had seen enough of history to know exactly where that would lead. They understood that for Israel to ever enjoy all the promises and blessings of God, including the land, they'd need to be resurrected and restored first. That's the order of operations in the gospel. You heal the people, and then you give them the land. And so, of course, that's where the New Testament ends, doesn't it? In Revelation 21, 1 to 5, the prophet says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. You get the land at the end, brothers and sisters, not at the beginning. Can I tell you something? Something that actually I think a lot of us need to hear. There will never be peace in the land. There will never be peace in Israel, Gaza, Russia, Ukraine, or Aurelia until human beings have been healed, resurrected, and restored through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the message of the Bible in a nutshell. The people of God cannot enjoy the blessings of God apart from the Son of God. It's that simple. And yet, oh, what a message that really is. Because once you understand that message, once you understand that the life that you were created to live is waiting for you in Christ on the other side, that changes how you live the rest of your life on this earth. That changes how you feel about everything, all the problems you face, all the challenges you face, all the sufferings God sows into your path. Changes how you process even the, the little things. Paul says it, it ought to change everything. It ought to change the way you deal even with financial fraud. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7 to a bunch of people who are really steamed about being robbed of a few dollars, he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not understand what you have? The life, the authority, the dignity, the blessedness that is in Christ kept safe for you in the heavenlies. Do you not understand? Because if you did, it would change the way you deal with everything. Do you know what you have? Do you understand that all the promises of God are yes and amen now for you in Christ? Because if you do, it changes everything. The hope of Israel, the land, the prosperity, the peace, and most important of all, the privilege of seeing God's face and enjoying his presence forever. All of that is yours now if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. He is the conclusion 
that the Old Testament narrative demands. He is the answer to all the questions left hanging at the end of that story. He is our hope. And that's the message that the Apostle Paul was on trial for preaching. That's the message that still turns the world upside down today. That's the gospel. To the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the person of Jesus Christ who did for us what we could never do for ourselves and who paid for what we have done in his body on the cross. Lord, who broke the prison doors and set the captives free, who has risen from the dead, who has ascended to the Father's right hand, who has poured out his Holy Spirit, who has begun to change us back into the people we were created and intended to be, and who has a future for us once we're healed, once we're restored, once we're resurrected back in the glorious land. Thank you for that. We put our trust in that. Hold us in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.